Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Um, the, the Commonwealth, originally the Imperial War Graves uh, Commission, was established in 1917, comprising six member states of the then only recently renamed British Commonwealth of Nations. This is an important um, geopolitical background to my talk. The organization was charged with providing appropriate memorials to commemorate the Commonwealth's First World War dead, individually, collectively, and importantly, equally. Now, this was no easy task, given the numbers of dead resulting from multiple theaters of war, uh, owing to the oftentimes competing demands of imperial and national or dominion war offices, and the uncertain aesthetic demands arising from public and individually attuned commemorative agenda. Now, at more or less the same time, additional war offices assumed responsibility for hordes of war trophies, uh, captured armaments and relics retrieved from battlefields across Europe. Now, these items were carefully catalogued and conserved by war office personnel in order to provide artifacts for building memorials in Commonwealth states. Now, my paper, in the time I have, describes the activities of... <clears throat> we're going to go back here. Sorry, we zoomed ahead. My paper um, describes the activities of the War Graves Commission and the Australian War Records Office in view of what David Simpson calls a culture of commemoration, composed in part, as I want to develop this notion, by the intertwined imperatives of collecting, documenting, documenting and remembering the dead. Now, to propose the operation of this culture in the present, time allowing, uh, my paper hopes to extend this comparison to include the meticulous salvage uh, and the conservation of relics from the collapsed towers of the World Trade Center following 9-11. It could be a long uh, bow to draw, but I'm going to try. Now, the battlefields of First World War and Ground Zero of the War on Terror share at least one feature in common, and this was the difficulty, if not the very impossibility, of identifying and extracting the dead from terrain rent by forces of astonishing magnitude. At sites of world of Wargrave Commission cemeteries, the meticulous bookkeeping of the commission, the orderly rows uh, and manicured lawns of burial grounds, contrast the morass of collapsed trenches, bombed and ruined landscapes of northern France and Flanders. Fabian Ware, the founding head of the commission, gives one idea of the scale of its enterprise as well as the multiple senses of wonderment, patriotism, humility, and civic indebtedness that were cultivated among the public by the commission's activities. In a lecture to the Royal Society of Arts in London on the 5th of March 1924, he said, I'll quote, you see them stretching across France and Belgium in a chain from the English Channel to the Vosges, nearly 1,000 of our war cemeteries in these two countries, in addition to more than 1,500 French communal cemeteries and churchyards in which some of our dead are buried. The chain continues across the north of Italy, and there in that country, together with scattered cemeteries and graveyards, there are 93 in all. Across Macedonia, the chain stretches. Here, there are 21 cemeteries. Down the Gallipoli Peninsula, where there are 31. To Smyrna, through Syria, where there are two. Through Palestine, passing over the Mount of Olives itself. In Palestine, there are 40. Through Egypt, where there are five, down Mesopotamia and to East Africa, where there are 400 burial places, 
And he continues, then the chain extends across the north of India to China, where there are 24 scattered burial grounds, to Australia and New Zealand, across Canada, and back to the United Kingdom, where there are more than 67,000 graves in some 5,000 churchyards and cemeteries. And where concludes this lecture. Somewhere, someone writing on these graves shortly after the war truly said that the empire had thrown a girdle of honor around the world, end quote. The War Graves Commission was established as an administrative department of the British War Office, taking over from volunteer services and charitable institutions, which hitherto were engaged in locating, identifying, and where possible, burying war dead. The commission was set up by representatives of governments of the British Empire, and its activities continued into the 1960s, when the construction of Second World War cemeteries was largely complete. Accounting and a bureaucratic apparatus set up to engage in multiple spheres of activity and call upon wide-ranging expertise partly explains the uniform appearance of the cemeteries, allowing for certain minor variations across the range of Ware's imaginative itinerary described in his 1924 lecture. Uniformity was also valued as aesthetic means of expressing the unity of the dead in common sacrifice, irrespective of rank, class, or race, and, and irrespective of class, which was particularly important. Good bookkeeping was equally essential to establish and maintain the commission's reputation for honorably managing war dead. The agency's archives contain countless letters exchanged with families of casualties confirming biographical details such as the spelling of their names and the dates of their birth that would be engraved on gravestones. Loved ones were given a choice of one of a limited number of incised religious emblems if they desired. Additional standardized insignia describing the soldier's branch, the military, or the nationality of their service complemented these. A committee of architects and sculptors, experts in stone and the weathering of stone, was established to determine the exact size and profile of gravestones and other details. And important features were the stone of remembrance and the great cross of sacrifice that were routinely incorporated into cemetery plans. And I'll give you a sense with these images of the standardization of these designs. Inscriptions on individual gravestones stuck to matters of fact, generally, the, the name, the date killed, the location of the death, and so forth. While those on these two group of monuments, the Stone of Remembrance and the Great Cross of Sacrifice, differed from the epitaphs on British civic memorials in their absence of moralizing sentiments. And the, commission, uh, the Commission's Director of Records called upon the agency's literary advisor, who was Rudyard Kipling, to ensure proper tone of the epitaphs. Now, propriety was also an outcome of additional technical measures and aesthetic contrivances. Ware's lecture in 1924 emphasizes the valuable contribution of the commission's engineers, and they devised means largely invisible uh, of, of an extensive system of concrete footings to keep gravestones standing upright, regardless of time's uh, passage and local conditions. Likewise, horticultural experts, a separate department in the commission entirely, and master gardeners chose from a range of botanical species to fill out the landscape between and surrounding the rows of gravestones. Some choices demonstrated long-held associations between nature and internment, such as yew and juniper trees. 
Other choices, such as eucalypts for Australian war graves, allowed for limited expression of natural origins. But overall, species selections were made for the hardiness of trees, shrubs, flowering plants, and grasses, their suitability for different soils, hydrological conditions, and climates. And in a number of cases, there was even an effort made to have an on-site English gardener which was enormously expensive when you consider the geographic dispersal of these sites on hand to, to maintain these places. Now, a mix of practical motives and moral justifications accounts for the Commission's systematic and uniform approach to the design of the cemeteries. First and foremost, the scale of the First World War and numbers of casualties, along with the remoteness of battlegrounds from home countries, required the on- or near-site burial of corpses. Secondly, along with considerable diplomacy to secure the agreement of foreign powers, both allies and former enemy combatants, when obtaining land for the cemeteries, the agreement of allies to support a common approach and share funding was facilitated by positioning the network of Commonwealth War Cemeteries as means and ends to promoting universal values. And these values were entailed in the Edwardian era belief that imperialism, specifically British imperialism, compared to the rampant German imperialism cited as a major cause of the war in the first place, was ultimately conducive to peace and the realization of civilized virtues. There followed, amongst other unrealized and subsequently ridiculed propositions, the idea that the Great War would prove to be the pivotal event that would end war for all time. And according to this thinking, the British Empire and its successor in 1917, the British Commonwealth of Nations, was truly global as a geographical and moral compass for bringing about a world that acknowledged but ultimately transcended national particularities and potential rivalries. While the vast majority of corpses of Commonwealth war dead were not returned to the land of their birth, a large armory of captured enemy weaponry was retrieved from the mud and mire of Flanders, Gallipoli, and other theaters of war, and shipped with considerable care and expense to distant dominions. Now, the war trophy program uh, has a long history. The tradition has a long history. Though with the advent of modern warfare on the scale of the First World War, and given rapidly expanding social, political, and cultural contexts of conflict, its meaning and relevance for the period is fluid. From early on in the war, attention was given by those governments contributing soldiers and treasure to the British imperial war effort to the collection and sharing of war trophies and relics so they might serve as fitting reminders of acts of bravery and national sacrifice once the hostilities were over. The determination of imperial authorities in London to reserve the best, the most impressive, or hard-won hard trophies for the British National War Museum, which was later to become the Imperial War Museum, regardless of how and by whom they were taken from the battleground, was soon contested by Commonwealth states. Claiming first choice of trophies captured by Amer Australian soldiers, Australian Prime Minister William Hughes argued that his countrymen were entitled to these for, quote, their kindred to see the tangible results of their valor, end quote. In a telegram sent to the Colonial Secretary in London on the 26th of February 1918, Prime Minister Hughes explained that, and I'll quote again, Britain already has a long history and traditions of relics and trophies extending back for centuries, whereas Australia has none here other than what she draws from the mother country. 
A nation is built upon pride of race, and now that Australia is making history of her own, she requires every possible relic associated with this to help educate her children in this national spirit, thereby ensuring loyal adherence to and defense of the empire of which she forms part. The Australian War Records Section was established in May 1914 with responsibility for all official documents relating to the Australian, Australian Imperial Forces and shortly thereafter responsibility for war relics and trophies captured by Australian soldiers. Administration of the program required a, required a comprehensive system for assembling, classifying and cataloging trophies. Items were all nearly, all clearly labeled in a manner indicating the name of the combat unit responsible for capturing them, the town or battlefield they came from, the date and time they were obtained, as well as any wish the unit capturing them might have expressed concerning a particular object's disposal. The precursor and name to the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, the Australian War, M War Museum, was established as a sister institution to the British National War Museum. It, it began as a committee located first in Melbourne and meeting in July 1919 to reserve a selection of the trophies and relics to form the museum collection. And the remaining objects were to be fairly distributed, it was hoped, between the Australian states according to guidelines established for that purpose. Now each state was served by a committee um, to oversee the distribution. After some debate, all states agreed upon a common system for distributing the trophies according to town size, demographically, basically. Um, census figures were used to help this distribution, with consideration also given to the provenance, provenance of any one particular item, specifically if it was captured by a unit from a given town and was therefore particularly meaningful for that community. Um, the system allowed towns, uh, other than capital cities, they were a different category of dispersal, with a population above 10,000 people to receive two captured artillery pieces and two machine guns. Towns with populations between 3,000 and 10,000 were allowed one artillery piece, while those with a population between 300 and 3,000 could be given one machine gun. Uh, the Victorian uh, school system, for instance, uh, was also given entitlements to distribute weapons to their individual schools. Although in Victoria, the Catholic Church protested this, so the Catholic schools uh, were exempted from this, or withdrew from this. Now, apocalyptic claims for the Great War are those presupposing a war radically transformed by the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001 tend to ignore more complex genealogies of conflict and the complex cultural status of phenomena like grief, sacrifice, and remembrance connected imperfectly or self-servingly with periods of aggression. Compared to such claims, especially the delusion of a war to end all wars and the monuments left behind, the everyday activities of the war office bureaucracies like the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and the Australian War Records section appear banal and insignificant. On the whole, reporters, historians, and fiction writers typically leave administrators, or as I'm calling them, everyday warriors, out of their accounts of conflict in the Great War in order to focus on big pictures and major players in the conflict. Now this is unfortunate because when looking through the archives making for the history with a, a small age of modern warfare, including newspaper archives, letters to editors, and the records of war offices, there's ample evidence to show how the War Graves Commission cemeteries and war trophy programs were far from universally well received. They played a role, in fact, as lightning rods for dissent. 
Likewise, the goal of remembrance was fraught with uncertainty. I mean, just what was being remembered after all. While the aesthetic treatment of war cemeteries and memorials on occasion heightened awareness of and resistance to imperialist and nationalistic narratives. For example, despite considerable effort undertaken by the War Graves Commission staff to mark the graves of war dead equally, the war cemeteries proved to be sites of social and political discord. The symbolic aspects of the Commission's bureaucratic practices were not very easily reconciled with the immediacy and variability of grief and the perceived rights of the aggrieved and of the dead. Some Commission policies were met with organized and vocal opposition, particularly following a ban by the British Army in 1916 on the construction of private memorials. So it no longer became possible if a family had the wealth and means to do so to go and repatriate the remains of their loved ones from abroad. This was banned. According to one account, by 1919, objections to the Commission policy of overseas burials resulted in 90 letters a week to its office in London demanding the repatriation of corpses. The adoption of a uniform size and tablet-like gravestone upon which a religious emblem could be carved was resisted by members of the community who preferred a carved stone cross, therefore allowing the familiar quote-unquote rules of decorum which govern an ordinary English churchyard to be observed. There are also accounts, not entirely substantiated, but not to be ruled out, of, of hired grave robbers who would go and retrieve the bodies of loved ones and return them illegally to uh, the home country. As for the broader moral issues behind these practices, in an impassioned plea to the British House of Commons in 1920, prior to a vote taken on extending funding for the Commission's activities, Sir James Rimnett said, and I'll quote, I am anxious that there should be equality for all, and that the right which is inalienable to every man, the right to do as he likes with his own dead, should not be taken away. The dead are certainly not the property of the state or of any particular regiment. The dead belong to their own relations, and anything that favors, in, in, inter, savors interfering with that right is bound to create opposition among the inhabitants, certainly of our empire. Entering the debate, fellow MP and conservative politician Roundell Palmer went further, speaking against the Commission's insistence on complete aesthetic uniformity of gravestones composing the war cemeteries. He argued, quote, it is a memorial not to freedom, but to rigid militarism, not in intention, but in effect. Now, likewise, despite the considerable expenditure and logistical expertise that accompanied the distribution of captured weaponry to sites of remembrance across Great Britain and its empire, not everyone wanted a war trophy in their community, or, were they un and, or sometimes they were unhappy with what they got. An article in the Manchester Guardian of January 7, 1928, for instance, describes how the, sit the City Council's support for its Parks Committee's decision to banish the armaments, and how, quote, elsewhere in more than one part of this country, they have been seized upon by ex-servicemen and bundled amid cheers into the sea or into the river, end quote. Attitudes to the trophies, however, were mixed in Great Britain and abroad. The town council of Port Pirie in South Australia declined their allocation of trophies by the State Trophy Committee, a decision that was strongly disapproved by the returned soldiers and also by many citizens in the community. The Sydney City Council's decision not to accept trophies was countered by some suburban community representatives who appealed to the New South Wales State Trophy Committee, requesting it find administrative means of bypassing the Metropolitan Council in the distribution process. I won't 
dwell on the, the, the reaction to my own state to the program, but it's equally mixed. Now, if I have time. A remarkable parallel, I believe, to the trophy program and the network of memorials at service is captured by Francesco Torres' Memory Remains. Some of you may have seen this exhibition. Uh, this is the title of a book and a photographic collection of artifacts salvaged from the World Trade Center following the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And coincidentally, these photographs were exhibited in 2011 at London's Imperial War Museum, uh, which, if you recall, was the repository of first choice for the first World War uh, trophies as well. Of the nearly two million tons of rubble removed from the World Trade Center site after 9-11, slightly less than two-tenths of one percent were collected for dispersal as community memorials. Now, the operation began shortly after the attacks when Ground Zero was still a six-story high pile of burning rubble, a crime scene, and a rescue site. Bob Davidson, the chief architect of the Port Authority of New York, which owned the World Trade Center site, initiated the salvage of the artifacts. He enlisted the assistance of a second architect, Bartholomew Vorsanger, who worked closely with the authority, and a third person who was the principal architect in the New York office of Skidmore, Owens, and Merrill. This was the firm that collaborated with Daniel Liebskin on the design of the infamous Freedom Tower. The team also included a fourth member, the former director of the art program for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And Vorsanger visited Ground Zero with a young office associate, another architect, each day. And the pair, first walking from the corner of West and Canal Streets along a, as I described it, a carpet of debris, uh, one story high, they spent every day afterwards for several months in their inspection. It continued, traversing the site from the northwest corner in a careful counterclockwise circuit, always counterclockwise, always the same routine every day for several months. Clambering over the slowly <coughs> diminishing mountain of debris and, and working their way between a crowd of emergency workers and demolition crews, the architects selected objects they believed might one day be valued as reminders of the event, painstakingly marking them for removal. And here you get a sense of, of the collection. It's quite diverse. It's wide-ranging, composed in parts of familiar-looking but now curiously twisted and collapsed steel vertical supports of the towers, but also objects such as damaged emergency and transit vehicles, crushed corporate artworks and merchandise from concourse-level shops. And I think it's interesting to reflect on the range of aesthetic choices made in, in, in acquiring this collection. The decision to preserve one object versus another, including the large, mostly unrecognizable fragments of compressed building floors, which came to be called a composites. And these appear in several of Torres' photographs with lines of fine string attached to their regular surfaces to allow detection and material expansion, a first step in the object's conservation. Uh, these were all collected in an abandoned hangar at John F. Kennedy Airport, and they were arranged in such a way as the plan uh, shows, some of these composites, um, for their easy retrieval and distribution on demand. And I'll just conclude. The Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemeteries and the Australian War Records uh, Service their trophy scheme, and arguably these memory remains of 9-11, demonstrate what appears to be a particularly modern drive, I would argue. One could call it an obsession, and perhaps the field of psychoanalysis has something to say here, an obsession to assemble and document material evidence of conflict as necessary first steps in a process of commemoration. Ingredients in the asceticization and packaging of catastrophic events for public consumption. A likely byproduct of this is what the cultural theorists might call the reification of a historical conflict. 
And this is the discursive and representational process obscuring the social and political forces of history behind facades of ordered assemblies of commemorative art and architecture, recognized by a culture as meaningful. Hence, there may be lessons, I would argue, from the past for understanding memorials to the war on terror today, and indeed, for understanding cultural aspects of the current period of memorial mania, as it's been called, and what drives it generally. So thank you very much.